Okay, we are going to John chapter 2. It's great to see you all here tonight. And this is our last uh, uh, portion of uh, our study of uh, how to study and understand the Word of God. And so there's, there's a lot more to it, but, you know, we've gotten the, the grass uh, pieces of it. Let's finish up uh, types and antitypes. Look at a few more of them. I want... Um, uh, we'll think about generic com- commands if we can get there and uh, specific commands. But let's talk about the greatness of the antitype. So the antitype is far greater than the type, right? The New Testament is greater than the Old Testament. So I can say it in that way um, to clarify things, make it simpler. But I want you to think about John chapter 2 and uh, verses 18 and verse 19. And listen to what uh, the text says. So the Jews, therefore, verse 18 and 19, the Jews, therefore, answered and said to him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so three days, Jesus then, if you will, um, replaces the temple. So the type is the temple, the physical structure of the building. And, and think about this, that temple Back in those days, and even to this day, if you go into uh, into Europe, those those buildings, temples, whatever, they're huge. They're massive, and they made those, if you will. Not they were the dwelling place of the people, but in the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place of God. Right? Remember the whole account of of David talking to God, and then Solomon and God saying, "I have never needed a place for man to build for me to dwell in." Right? So Jesus says, if you, if you tear this temple down, this, this great edifice, right? If you tear this building down, everything that represents your worship place, I'll rebuild it in three days. And then their response to show you how great the antitype or how great Jesus is, what Jesus is about to do in three days, look if you will at verse 20 and 21. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and when you raise it up in three days. I mean, wow, right? Hey, the type and the antitype. There's no comparison. Three days, 46 years. Verse 20, um, 21 says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, what did Jesus do? So Jesus, the antitype, took what they were restricted in and opened it up to the whole world, Right? So they had this building they just, they constructed and prayed to God. Solomon had that long, beautiful prayer. And then the, the smoke of the cloud, if you will, filled the temple to show or signify that God says, I accept this and I will, I will dwell, if you will, uh, in this place. Although he made that clear. He doesn't dwell in houses made, with, made by hands. But they went to that place for their sacrifices. And that was the holy place. So you look at history and you find... All of these dwelling places where churches have made huge buildings to worship in, and that is their church. So the transition has to happen in our minds where we know the answer that the building is not the church. But what did Jesus say? The people are the church. So where in the Old Testament you had a building that was that was set in one location. Remember John uh, chapter 4, the woman at the well, and she says, well, they worship on Mount Gerizim, or they worship over, you know, they were, the argument about where you worship, and Jesus says, they're coming a time, 
right? And so here it is. We're in that day. We were for the first century. Every child of God is a walking, talking church building. Isn't that great? We represent Christ everywhere, right? We represent the dwelling of God everywhere and are not limited nor restricted in any way. So the type, the building, comes to the antitype, Jesus Christ, and it opens up to the whole entire world all day, every day, right? Even if on an outside of the world where it's dark, on the other side of the world is light. The church is always constantly working. And then it goes one step further, John 1. No, in fact, before we go to John 1, let's get the Old Testament, Second Chronicles, chapter 7. Let's get the Old Testament passage, um, beginning at verse, um, verse 1. Let's get the Old Testament, where here it is, God among the people and dwelling, if you will, in the temple. And keep in mind, again, God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. But now when Solomon, verse 1, had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering of the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the, ho- the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire, came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house and bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, He is good. Truly, His loving kindness is everlasting. So, in that instance, the end of the prayer was over and then the glory of God filled the Holy of Holies, right? And that was great. That was, I mean, to see that would have been spectacular. But look at what God did. John 1. Let's go to John 1 now. John chapter 1. He took it, being the antitype, another step. And the second step goes like this. Verse 14. Now God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is not restricted, right? Nice with every one of us, right? And so wherever we go, we display the glory of God. The greater of the greatness of all things comes through God. And look, it's coming through us. Isn't that great? It's coming through God's people. So when, when, when we think about the greatness of Christianity, that's why we have to walk circumspectly. That's why as God's children, we have to be a light, if you will, a reflection of Jesus to a lost and dying world because this is where they're going to come when they want to know about Jesus. They're coming to you. But if we are not exemplifying that great glory of God that I am saved, I am a child of God, I am a Christian, and if we're not proud about that, what's going to cause them to want to know more about our faith? Nothing. And yet, if you go to the temple, you go back and you, you think about it now. Now the temple, right? You, you think about Herod's temple and the great temples of the old, and people go to visit those, those places. Why? <laughs> Something greater is here, right? Something greater has already come, the Messiah. The greater and the greatness. Let's go to Exodus chapter, chapter 12. The greater and the greatness of the antitype is just is so powerful and, it, and it's so present, and it, it's so moving that uh, if we could just remember and recognize 
the power of what we have in our hands or what we have as ourselves, as God's people. The power of, I mean, right now we're very empathetic uh, and even sympathetic of what's going on in the Ukraine. And we pray, God, this will stop, right? We, we pray, God, violence will stop all over the world, though, right? But something greater than that. We got the power, power of prayer. That's greater than any bomb, right? I mean, I mean, so, so how much are we praying for everything? There's all the violence of the world to stop, right? That's our involvement. That's how important we are to this lost and dying world. Okay. So that, that's the type, if you will, from the, the temple's perspective. Uh, now let's go to the, uh, the type and the antitype of the lamb. So Exodus 12. I want to begin in verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner. This is, this is the Passover lamb. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, I know I said this um, last week, and, and I, will, I will say this continually because this is really important. And I don't want us to miss it, and so I continue to mention it. And every time I think about the Passover and in a lesson or wherever we come to this passage, I'm going to mention it because we can't miss it. The communion bread that we partake is eaten in haste because Jesus is coming back. Okay? And, and the, the more that we forget that and play that down as if, you know, we get into that, um, that mindset that the early church got into and the mindset that the, the latter church has gotten into to where, well, you know, everything's going on the same. It's not going on the same church. I mean, it looks like it is, I know. And in our short lifetime, we, we wake up and we go to bed, wake up and we go to bed, wake up and we go to bed, and we do it until we die. And it looks like everything is going on the same. It's a little more innovative now in our world, but it looks like it's going on the same. But it's not. It's ticking down because Jesus is coming. How many of us believe that anymore, right, as God's people? How many of us believe that God is coming, and when he comes... Let me talk about that in a second. Wow, right? So it's ticking down. In fact, our clocks, our biological clocks are tick ticking also, right? You know, we, we're not counting uh, to the greatness of, look at how old I am. We're counting down. <laughs> I'm getting closer to the grave, right? And we celebrate that, which is, I think is funny. We celebrate our every year that we get closer to the grave. Well, as a Christian, that's great. But for the world, they, that shouldn't be a celebration in reality, right? I'm closer to the grave. I'm closer to my judgment. For the Christian, I'm closer to my home, right? But how many of us believe that we might not make it that far? God might come back tomorrow. So the point is, when we take the Lord's Supper, uh, I want us to take our minds, if you will, elevate our minds to the greatness of what it is that we're doing and what we're participating in and what we're talking to the world about. We'll get back there in just a second. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now think about for just a moment how long they were in Egyptian bondage for. And they were groaning and crying to God for deliverance. And it, it felt like forever, right? It felt like forever to them. And then one day God said, nope, it's over. Tomorrow's going to be over. You don't have time for your bread to rise. So it's unleavened, right? I want you to eat this unleavened bread. 
I want you to eat this feast, if you will, of the Passover with your shoes on your feet. Because you're going home. You're, you're about to leave this place. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we've got to remember we're eating it and saying, we're about to leave this place, right? We're about to leave. Now, we ought to be rejoicing over that. We ought to rejoice and be excited over the fact that we are about to leave this place and be with God forever. Now, does that mean he's coming back tomorrow? I don't know when he's coming back. There may not be another Sunday. This may have been the last Sunday that we've seen on this earth. But if we forget about that, it takes away the urgency that you find in verse 11. Verse 11 is a passage of urgency, right? That this is about to happen. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so, this is exactly what God did, right? He struck the land of Egypt. And I want you to think about that night. And then we're going to try to correlate that with the day, right? So think about that night. Um, let's look at verse 29. Let's think about that night. The eerie feeling of that night. Right? It's kind of hard to even explain it, right? You're in your homes, and I don't know if there was a sound or not. The Bible doesn't tell us, does it? But there was a deaf angel, right? Coming through the camp, through the houses, through the streets, down the streets. And if it sounded like our 83 mile an hour winds coming, coming down the arm, <laughs> uh, coming through the arm or coming down off the mountains, wherever it is, think about that night. And look at verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. They didn't have the blood, right? But they didn't have the blood. And so whether there was a sound from the death angel through the night or not doesn't matter because there was a sound. There was a sound of tears and mourning and desperation, and crying. And they cried to their God, by the way, of Egypt, but there was no answer. And everywhere that did not have the blood, there was, there was death. And then when you walked out of your home the next morning, you heard the crying, and you saw the, the, the firstborn, if you will, being carried off. You saw the cattle dead outside, because that was part of their gods as well. And it was like, Something horrific has just happened. And there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. Right? And it was of God. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that event. But that's just the type. <laughs> that's just the type. You know, well, wait a minute. So what, what does the antitype look like? What else could there be that's worse than that? And that's the end, right? So look at what he says. Go to Matthew, please. Chapter, uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. So when you, when you get into uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is our Passover. 
lamb. And uh, 1 Peter 1 and verse 19 talks more about the Passover. I want to go to Matthew chapter 24. And I want us to look, if you will, and think about the coming of the Lord. Now he talks about Noah and all that happened with Noah. And then when we get all the way over to verse 40. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 40. He says some, some you know, some strange, he uses strange language. And he says that uh, there, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Right? And I, don't, I don't know what that looks like. But it, it's kind of eerie, isn't it? And then he says, and there'll be two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken, and one will be left. I, I used to try to describe to people, I say, well, I know when the end comes, I want to be looking down, not up, right? If you're looking up, you were left. If you're looking down, then you're on your way to heaven, right? I want to be looking down, right? Now, I don't know how long this process in this day, we know it's one day, because the Bible says on the day, right? A definite article, the day. So I know there are lots of books written about 7,000 years or 10,000, whatever, you know, all that. But it's only, it's, this is one day. And, and I don't know what is, I'm not even going to paint a picture, but you can paint your own picture. But one person will be taken and you're, you know, you're grinding at the meal and if, you know, you look and then you say, yeah, you know, Bob, I just, and you look over there and Bob's gone. That's not fun. That's not going to be fun, right? That, how'd that happen? And and it, and and that's and that's coming. That day is coming. And and what day? What what else? Well, look, verse forty-two. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. How many times does God have to warn us and say, "Be on the alert"? You see, what happens is we become so relaxed that um, we become like the world, just like nope, everything's been going the same from. Since our birth, right? And then our parents and grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. No, it hasn't been the same. Not in the mind of God. And the mind of, the, of God is getting closer and closer to the day when he says, that's it, right? I've had enough. God waited patiently in the days of Noah, and he's waiting patiently today. What are we talking about? You take the Lord's Supper? Urgency urgency, right? The antitype is far greater than the type. Urgency. So he goes on in verse 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, it would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And so there are no more warnings, right? No more signs. When is it going to be? So here's the urgency then. The question is, now that I know that, and I view that, and I'm reminded every week of it, right? When I take the Lord's Supper, I'm reminded that Jesus is coming back. How urgent is my soul's rightness, if you will, with God? If I made the wrongs right, right? Now was the time to make the wrongs right. Not, not tomorrow. Now was the time to get it right with God. You see, now, remember, I, I've talked to you about it, and I keep saying it, because I'm reminding myself to preach the sermon in the Isle of Shame. Satan has caused us to not go to our brothers and make wrongs right because we're ashamed. Satan has tra- transferred righteous action 
into wickedness. And that's wrong, right? Because none of us in here are perfect. And so when we've got something wrong, we've got to make it right. And when do we do it? We do it yesterday, right? It's urgent. So the antitype is greater, greater. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord willing, if Sunday comes, right? And you hold that, that piece of bread in your hand, and it's unleavened because it doesn't have time to rise. Because, and by the way, you have your shoes on your feet and you're dressed. And Jesus just might come before you're able to consume that unleavened bread. That's how urgent it is. And then if he doesn't come and Monday comes and your eyes awake and we are on our way for our week that God has blessed us with or that day, remember the urgency of every moment. So what does the Bible say? Redeeming the time, right? Taking every advantage and opportunity that God has given to us to do two things. One is to be right with God and two, to help somebody else find him, right? And we can do that in two ways, verbally, and we can also do it through our lifestyle. So as the opportunity presents itself, that's where we're supposed to be. So, so the antitype is far greater than the type, always. Let's go to Romans, please. Chapter 4. When you go back and you look at, I'm going to come back to, um, to that scene, um, but just the, the idea to understand what formed Israel, okay? Um, Romans chapter 4, there was a seed promise that, that God wants us to understand because if you understand the seed promise, um, we don't often talk about um, Adam and the seed through Jesus, right? And that it was, you know, it's through the Jews and, and we, we get that as it follows through the chain. But God sees a seed very differently than we do. Okay, God sees the seed very uniquely different. And when you start reading through the genealogy, you start going, well, wait a minute. First of all, to prove that God sees the seed very differently than the way we see it, why is Joseph's lineage even mentioned? You don't even need Joseph, right? Why do you even put Joseph in there? Joseph is insignificant. He's not the father, right? You are not the father, right? He wasn't. What's the point? God sees it differently. How did Rahab the harlot get in there? Right? And you, go, you start going down that list, you start realizing God has a plan far beyond what we sometimes like to admit. Right? His plan is amazing. Right? Okay, the type and the antitype. So Israel. So, so what formed Israel? What was God thinking of? And what did God see? Uh, what was going through the mind of God as he formed Israel? Okay, let's go look at Romans 4, and let's look at verse 16, please. Verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the Bible describes this as a mystery. What's that verse even talking about? He says, I'm not just talking to the descendants of Abraham. See, I've always had another plan that's always been coexistent with my current plan. So when you read the Old Testament, there are, there are if you will, 
two laws that run side by side as there are two peoples that run side by side. Both equally important to God. There are the Gentiles and there are the Jews, right? And, and there are two laws running side by side. And the law of Moses does not affect the Gentiles. It's not for the Gentiles. It was only for the Jews. There was another law, the law of morality, that runs right alongside the law of Moses all the way into the New Testament, all the way over to about somewhere around Acts chapter 10. God has always been concerned about all people. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that when we start talking about uh, about these these two. Well, we can't in this study. We'll do it in another study. These two laws that run side by side. And so God says, I've got people all over the world. All of my people, right? Okay, that's verse 18. Not restricted, not limited to the Jews. Sorry, verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he delivered in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. He didn't say one nation. He said many nations, right? A multitude of nations, which is so important, right? It's so critically important. So you have these Gentiles, and you have these Jews, and you have God working in both on both sides all the way through to Jesus. Now, Jesus brings us all into one, right? Okay, well, let's think about something for a second. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3. What was the purpose of God giving us the genealogy of Adam through Seth, but not giving us the genealogy, if you will, of Adam to Cain through Cain? And then why did he stop that genealogy after Genesis chapter 10? Think about that for a minute. Right? So you have, you have Cain's genealogy before the flood, and then there, uh, then you continue on, you have Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then their genealogies continue to break up, and then you go, some folks go one way, some folks go the other way, they're all still related, but God only focuses on the genealog- genealogical trail of that which brings us to what? To Jesus. That way it's undeniable and, and irrefutable that the Messiah came to the earth. Jesus said, had I not come, you'd have an excuse. But since I've come, you have no excuse. Right? And so God has given us a significant and most powerful historical genealogical trail that follows all of all the evils of Israel and Judah uh, all the way through to Jesus Christ. So we can look back and have this historical chain that emphasizes the coming of the Messiah. But what, what about all the other nations? Right? What about all the other nations? Again, that for another study for another time. But here's the point. Those other nations were part of God's plan. The whole world. So we just don't see it. Right? That's how we have all these issues. And we shouldn't have these issues. Let's look at verse 14. Genesis, I mean, Galatians chapter 3, verse uh, 14. There it says, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the promise of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. When did that happen? Well, we know it happened through Jesus, but when did it actually happen? From the beginning of time, right? 
just like the blood of bulls and goats that cannot take away sin, so also the joining together or dividing asunder of God's people cannot possibly happen because Jesus already took care of it for us. He reconciled the world, right? But it was already done in the mind of God, just like the forgiveness of sins was done in the mind of God because the Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the earth. So once God made us, it was already done. The plan was already in motion. It was in motion from the days of eternity. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. So all of this goes into this mystery in, in this plan that God has that he never wants us to look down on other people because they're, they're our brothers. <laughs> Biologically, first. Y'all agree? <laughs> Everybody got one man, right? <laughs> Biologically, we're all brothers, right? But the greater antitype is spiritually a whole different meaning of brotherhood, right? All right, watch this. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. So this is... This mystery, right, that God has been holding on to. But at the same time, he's been revealing it. The problem is we haven't been listening. Or should I say Israel didn't listen. So when Jesus talked to that Samaritan woman at the well, she said, you know, Jews have no dealings with the Gentiles or the Samaritans, right? Even though Samaritans are um, parts of the Jews, right? They're a mixed group, if you will, from the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. How do they get like that? Self-righteousness. That's how they got that way, right? right? It, was, it was an issue. There were some issues that, that happened. But um, I want to go back and look at, look at Israel. Turn back to Exodus 12. Look at Israel. Let's take a, a closer look at Israel. I know we have the descendant line of Israel. God gave that to us um, through uh, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, the seed promise. Uh, I get that. I know what the Bible says clearly about that. But let me give you more information about, about Israel and what forms or makes up Israel so that you can see how that type. Israel is a type of today's Israel, the church, right? We are Israel. But how can that be? Because, because the church is composed of, if you want to, you know, say it in this way, Jew and Gentile. The, 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 the church is composed of all nations, like the promise of God through Abraham, the Abrahamic promise that many, a multitude of nations, nations, over and over again, peoples, nations. He's saying all these people are going to be one. Well, let me just show you what formed Israel. Um, so back to Exodus 
So you have all the Genesis, right? The problems of Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's boys. And now we get down to the, the if you will, leaving Egypt. Verse 38. And a mixed multitude also went up with them along with the flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. And then it goes on to talk about that. And there's just one verse. But that one verse is so powerful because that one verse is the collection of the Israelites. It wasn't just Israel who left Egypt. There were Egyptians. There were, there were all peoples. Remember the Bible makes it clear when you read this, the account. All peoples were coming to Egypt. Right? And then many were, if you will, in bondage. The Israelites in particular, the Hebrews, right, were in bondage. And then the Hebrews, along with a mixed multitude, leave that and they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And that's what formed on the other side of the Red Sea what we know as Israel. That's Israel. And all those people mixed and intermixed and intermingled. They were one people anyway, physically, right? And that's what formed Israel. So now when you read the Old Testament and you start reading about Israel, you've got to keep in mind what that really means. That is the type, right? It's a bunch of people who are mixed together and, and are following one God. So this would, would be what we get maybe a term. Uh, well, it's a, it's a term that fits in Genesis, but we'll use it in Exodus, and it's proselyte, right? It's a, it's a group of people who proselyted these folks, and these folks said, we're going to follow the one true God. And they all mixed together and came out. So we, turn to Romans 9, please. We, the church, make up that antitype that Israel, uh, that God has been speaking of in a, a mystical way, if you will, that God has been speaking of from the very beginning of time. The very message that God wanted us to get was that we're all, we're all, we're all one people, one nation. Right? One nation. Well, Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not through the word of God. It is not as though, excuse me, the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from. You see the point? You see? They're not all Israel who were born through the bloodline. Right? I mean, later on, Mama got with Daddy, and Mama wasn't Israel, and Daddy was, and you have children, and then, you know, and the list goes on, right? You see, there's a, there's a bigger blessing in this. The antitype and the type, the type of Israel to the antitype. Again, verse, verse uh, 6, please. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel, Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendant will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as the descendants. Oh. Hmm. That's why the church must always be comprised of a mixed multitude. Right? That's why your prayers have to be unbiased for the mixed multitude of the world. Right? We have brothers and sisters all over the world. Do we treat them the same? Right? 
I mean, everywhere. I love it. I love going on uh, mission works and, and, and being amongst our brethren. It's just exciting to be amongst brethren. The world, they don't get it. They're not supposed to get it. Right? Galatians, please. Chapter, chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and uh, verse... We'll start at verse 15. Verse 15. And we have just a couple minutes left. Um, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the... See that? Israel of God, right? What is a big... What is a, a mixed multitude of people that are struggling and need help from God, right? The only difference is we acknowledge it and the world hasn't come to that point yet, right? We acknowledge we're all messed up. I mean, you, you don't have to, but I will. I'll be the first to say just messed up, right? That's why I got to pray all the time. Ask God to forgive me and continue to try to work through the issues of life. Some of them are my issues. Some of them are people's issues. Some of them are my issues that I bring people in. And some of them are people's issues that I'm brought into, right? It's just, I'm just messed up. I need help. You guys remember to pray for me. I'll pray for you because I know you're messed up too. I just won't, I won't, I won't, I'm not going to say that out loud. Don't you hate when you say what you're thinking? <laughs> right? I just, all right. And if you don't believe I'm messed up, ask my wife. She'll tell you. Okay. Let, let's quickly, because we're um, almost completely out of time. Uh, let's let's leave types and types. Thank you for that. I appreciate your, your your time for that. When we're studying the Bible, we're looking at hermeneutical principles, right? And so, when you're looking at hermeneutical principles, it's just a it's basically it's a, a biblical interpretation, right? Now I, you're going to hear the preacher say this all the time. We don't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets what itself, right? So that means if you don't understand a passage of scripture, instead of throwing an interpretation from a commentary in there, which is what gets us into trouble. Just keep reading that scripture, right? Read the whole chapter. Read five. I always say this. Read five verses above it. Read five verses below it to get a better understanding of the context. And if that doesn't give you the greatest understanding, read the whole book or read the whole chapter. And sometimes you got to read the whole Bible through. But when you don't understand something, let it go. Pray about it and say, God, when you're ready to give give that to me, I'm ready. Let let it happen in God's time, right? That that's called true growth, right? If and so that's important. We keep, we continue to read and read and we study. Now, exegesis is to, to, um, to lift out, if you will, or, or to lead out. You know, it's like you're looking into the scripture and you find this passage and you go, oh, what does that passage mean? And you want to dig in that verse and you try to understand what that verse is saying. So you start picking at it, right? And when you, when you pick it apart, it, it, it doesn't mean that you go to Genesis chapter one for a second. It's not going to be on the screen, by the way. When you, when you start picking it apart, you're, you're, not, you're not trying to change what's being said. You're allowing God to say what he wants to say, right? And so, God, what do you want, what do you want me to know? And so we start picking at it. And, we start, and so we start in verse 1, and it says, in the. So that's very important. We have a, in the Hebrew, we have a definite article. And so the definite article is speaking of a specific Specific time. There aren't two beginnings. There's only one, right? And the beginning. So that's what we get. What? When? What happened at this particular point? That has never happened before. Time. God is outside of time, 
Right? Now do you see how God's outside of time? God created time. Okay. So, so then we stop for a moment and say, okay, well, we'll okay, we'll have some stuff before that. Well, God doesn't reveal the stuff before that, uh, except later somewhere he starts giving us glimpses into this place called, what, heaven, right? The heavenlies, if you will. And you start thinking about the, the heavens and you're thinking about God's glory, the third heaven, if you will, uh, the fourth heaven, whatever. Wherever God is, is like in that space that's outside of all this stuff. All right? And God made it all. And you go, all right, so what God did was when God started creating, he, he began this thing called time. And you go, okay, I got it. God is that, that latent force, if you will, right? God is it. He is everything. You start looking, you go back to the Hebrew, and you realize that word is Elohim. You say, Elohim, what is Elohim? Well, it's funny because the word, the construction of the word is singular, but it's used in a plural way, which is interesting, only in reference to God. Because it, it has to. Because it's not saying God, as we call God the Father, it's saying God. And that's comprised or composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And that's consistent with the text. You know, let us make man in our image. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. So you get a better understanding or thought of that word, God, who is outside of the beginning. But he's not mentioned as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit until way later. And why does God reveal himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because he's doing it so we can understand it. What we've done, though, we've taken the word God and said, well, you know, the Father is the, is the greatest, and then the Son is, is just below him, and then the Holy Spirit, and then... But that doesn't what, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? God, right, Elohim, is co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal, right? And, and outside of time. So we're talking about God, not... Right? Okay, and then you continue, uh, create it so that we have energy, well, here we go. We're talking about science, aren't we? We're talking science right now. Okay, so we have latent force. We have time. We have energy now. He created. So stuff's starting to move, right? Later, Newton came up with some ideas. But, it, you know, stuff's moving, and you go, wow, energy. God created the heavens. What is that? Space. And then the earth, matter, right? You've got the five components of science in verse 1. That's to exit. To exit. Now you can go back and go back to Genesis 1 1 and say, ah, let me think about some of this now, right? And then you start adding what the Bible gives us to all of these, these events, if you will. Uh, maybe you start at created. What has God created? All things but Himself, right? So I say, okay, got that. So that means when someone asks me about Jesus, well, He's part of the Elohim, so we know He's not created, right? And then you think about uh, the Holy Spirit, and then you start looking in this passage, and you start coming into these problems, because as you continue reading, and you're exegeting, you're exiting out of the passage was there, when he says the heavens, that in verse, what is it, um, yeah, the heavens, that means a whole lot more than we think about, because guess what he hasn't told us about in, in the creation? He hasn't told us when he created the angels, but we know they're created. Right? Nowhere in it does he tell us when he created the angels in Genesis chapter 1. Doesn't talk about that. So you got to get that somewhere else. But then we're paused for a moment. We don't want to throw our own ideas in there, do we? We were paused for a moment and go, wow, that's, that's something to think, think about. And when he created the angels, he created order. Right? Order is 
not just in the creation, but, you know, there are the cherubim, and there's the seraphim, right? There's rank. There's Michael the archangel, and then, the, right, Gabriel, and then he starts. So there's this orderly thing that's happening in the heavens, and something else happens in there, somewhere in that heaven thing. Revelation 12 says, oh, by the way, there was a war up there at some point that we know nothing about when you start looking at matter because it's, it's not in there. We get into chapter 3. We know the war had to happen before chapter 3, right? Because there was no evil, and all of a sudden here comes Satan, the craftiest beast of the field, and boom, he's thrown to the earth. I mean, what I'm saying is we could spend a, maybe we should spend a lifetime studying the Bible. What do y'all think? All right, the lesson is yours. God bless you. Thank you for your time uh, tonight. We will uh, end this lesson. And Brother James, we're thankful for you coming up and teaching us uh, Lord willing, next, next uh, Wednesday uh, for some time. So God bless you all. We'll have a devotion in a moment. Uh, all are invited who may have a need for, uh, for Christ in one way or another in regarding special prayers or baptism. Thank you. We're dismissed.